The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Don King is one of the most successful and well-known boxing promoters of all time. He has become a household name, and he's been closely associated with boxing legends like Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, and Larry Holmes. Long before his career as a big league promoter got off the ground, Don King was a gambling kingpin with two murder charges under his belt. But his life after these charges played out in a way that many people would find surprising. This is Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. Join me today as I walk you through the murder case involving Sam Garrett. takes us to Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland is the second largest city in Ohio with an estimated population of around 381,000. It sits on the southern shore of Lake Erie. The Midwest manufacturing city hosts the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and America's first ever indoor shopping mall, the Arcade, which dates back to the Victorian era. In the late 1960s, when this case took place, Cleveland was faced with civil unrest stemming from racial tension. Following the Civil War, freed slaves had migrated up north to pursue a better, less segregated life. This migration continued after both world wars, with wartime manufacturing providing coveted employment opportunities. The east side of Cleveland became congested slums filled with dilapidated schools. By July of 1966, Residents had grown fed up with social inequalities between white and black Clevelanders. The Huff riots began when a black man was denied a glass of water at a white-owned cafe. An entire neighborhood rioted over the course of six days. The crowd overpowered police, who took photographs of the looters in hopes of making future arrests. Vandalism and arson caused property damage exceeding a million dollars. The situation was so bad that the mayor had to call in the National Guard. It took 2,200 Ohio National Guardsmen to restore order in the city. In the end, four people were killed, 30 were injured, and more than 300 people were arrested. Cleveland became nationally renowned for its high rate of violent crime. Despite racial tensions in the city, in 1967, Cleveland became the first U.S. city to elect an African-American mayor. In April of 1968, Mayor Carl B. Stokes instituted Cleveland Now, an initiative involving the revitalization of Cleveland neighborhoods. Though social progress seemed imminent, Mayor Stokes cautioned that having a black mayor was not exactly insurance against racial discord. As an aside, 
Mayor Stokes left office to become Ohio's first African-American congressional representative. While the fight for social justice raged on, Don the Kid King was hustling and exploiting the dreams of his neighbors. Many of us are working from home during this time. If you want to up your work-from-home style game, you've got to try Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants. They are totally professional-looking, but they feel like you're wearing PJs. Genius, right? I've been wearing these pants for months now, and here's what I love about them. The wrinkle-resistant stretch-knit fabric they're made from makes me feel like I'm wearing yoga pants. They are so comfortable. I can see why so many women are obsessed with these pants because the fit is on point, making your figure look that much better. I also love that there are a variety of colors and styles to choose from, like cropped, straight leg, boot cut, and skinny, which is my personal favorite. With new styles available weekly, you can keep your look fresh with Beta Brand's array of dress pants that look like a slick pair of work pants, but feel like you're wearing your favorite pair of yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash murderish. Find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 25% off. All of us are adjusting to a new normal, and avoiding leaving the house is top of mind for many of us. I used to go to the post office to ship Patreon perks to murderish listeners, but now I just use Stamps.com. Not only can I print postage right from my computer with Stamps.com, I can schedule a pickup from my house and avoid getting out of my PJs. Stamps.com saves me a ton of time, but also a lot of money because I get awesome discounts too. Every stamp is discounted by five cents and I get up to 62% off shipping rates for the U.S. Postal Service and UPS. Oh yeah, did I forget to mention that you can ship via UPS with your Stamps.com account? Stamps.com is a serious game changer for me. It's a convenient and cost-effective one-stop shop for all of my shipping needs. Right now, our listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in murderish. That's stamps.com, enter murderish. Donald King was born on August 20th of 1931 in Cleveland, Ohio. He was the second youngest child out of six siblings. Clarence and Hattie King raised their family in the Shaker Heights neighborhood, which King often referred to as a Depression-era ghetto. When King was only 10 years old, his father was killed in a tragic accident. There was an explosion at the steel mill where he worked, and it claimed his father's life. King's mother, Hattie, used the $10,000 insurance settlement to move the family to a middle-class neighborhood in search of a better life for her and her children. When money was tight, Hattie baked pies and had her son sell them along with bags of peanuts. Eventually, as a sales gimmick, the brothers would tuck a lucky number into the bags. This attracted a following of local gamblers and numbers runners. At John Adams High School, 
King dabbled in lightweight boxing. He lost half of the amateur matches and failed physical education. What he lacked in skill or strength, however, he certainly made up for with his affable personality and sharp intellect. These people skills would take King very far in life. After graduating in 1950, King worked as a numbers runner so he could pay for college tuition. He dreamed of becoming a lawyer, and he was one of only a few African-American students accepted into Kent State. After losing a woman's winning betting slip, he had to use his own money to pay the loss. As a result, college had to be put off until King's savings could be replenished. He eventually enrolled at Case Western University, but he dropped out after only a year. By age 20, he had become a successful and well-established numbers runner on the east side of Cleveland. The numbers game, also referred to as the numbers racket, was a form of illegal gambling. It appealed mostly to poverty-stricken neighborhoods whose residents hoped to elevate their financial status quickly and easily. In the book, African American Organized Crime, A Social History, Authors Rufus Schatzberg and Robert J. Kelly explain that playing numbers afforded the player a slim hope of relief from grinding poverty. The state lottery wouldn't exist for another 30-plus years. During the 1960s, betting was done through local bookkeepers or bookies. Numbers rackets were a way for entrepreneurs to work their way up to the top by exploiting community trust. King bought several local businesses using the money he earned from running numbers. One spot he owned was the New Corner Tavern, where top black musicians performed. This included B.B. King, Jonah Jones, Errol Garner, and Lloyd Price. The venue also hosted King's illegal bookmaking operation, where money or other valuable goods were kept and used to place bets. King's demeanor began to reflect his newfound wealth, he was often spotted driving around the east side of Cleveland in his shiny Cadillac, clad in garish clothing and flashy rings while puffing a cigar. He refused to hire a bodyguard because he believed it would make him look like a crime boss, but he always carried a gun and a briefcase full of cash. King was a brilliantly intentional businessman. He made a show of delivering wads of cash to winners of his numbers game often with an audience of delighted onlookers. This gave people hope that they too could win. This technique of announcing winners demanded attention, and attention brought more money. King knew he also had to earn the respect of his peers. When his livelihood was threatened, he took matters into his own hands. On December 2nd of 1954, Don King shot and killed a man named Hillary Brown. He was one of three men from Detroit who was planning to rob King's gambling spot on East 123rd Street. A confrontation followed that led to gunfire. King used his Russian revolver to fire a fatal shot into Hillary Brown's back. At trial, King claimed self-defense despite running an illegal gambling operation. County Prosecutor Bernard Conway deemed the crime a justifiable homicide. All charges against King were dropped. In the mid-1960s, King worked with a partner to become Cleveland's top policy and numbers racketeer. 
According to a 2011 Dan Wetzel article for the post-game website, at its apex, King's operation was said to be grossing $15,000 a day. This business acumen perked up the ears of local Jewish-American mobster Alexander Shonder Burns. Burns' illicit career dated back to the Prohibition era. In exchange for his protection and insurance money, King was promised short-term loans to keep his operations running in case of a major loss. But when King requested a loan, he was declined and assaulted. On May 23, 1957, a bomb decimated the front porch of King's house. When he contacted police, he voiced his suspicions that Burns was behind it. A few days later, in retaliation, Burns' men returned and ambushed King in his driveway. The assassination attempt ended with several pellets hitting the back of King's skull. Surprisingly, he survived, with fragments remaining embedded in his head to this day. In 1966, King hired ex-convict Sam Garrett to assist in a new business venture. This new numbers operation involved betting on three numbers revolving around daily stock quotes. The trick here was that King had a contact who worked at the New York Stock Exchange. At around 2 p.m. each day, King or an associate would call the New York stockbroker to get the numbers. Then, King would place 35 to 40 bets on different combinations of the three numbers. This method of insider trading in the numbers game kept the money flowing into King's pocket. He also placed bets with rivals to double his profits. Sam Garrett had the misfortune of coming up short for one runner job. Some sources say King had placed a winning bet, while others state that Sam failed to place several bets with other policy operators. Regardless, according to King, Sam owed him $600, and nobody got away with ripping off Don King. Recently, I told you about a delicious sleep drink that my husband and teenager have been drinking. Well, here's an update. They are still loving it. Psalm Sleep is a sleep drink in a small can, and it's meant to be consumed just before you go to bed to get a quality night's sleep. Not only does Psalm Sleep's berry-flavored drink taste good, but it's also drug-free and non-habit-forming, unlike some other products on the market. Have you ever woken up in a haze after taking a sleep aid before bedtime? With Psalm Sleep, you wake up feeling refreshed, no sleep aid hangover. Let's talk about ingredients. Psalm Sleep contains ingredients such as magnesium and melatonin, which are already found in your body. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free as well. Need I say more? This sleep drink is so delicious and effective. And did I mention it comes in a sugar-free option as well? Recently, my six-year-old daughter asked my husband to make a wish out loud, and he simply wished for a good night's sleep. He has always had sleep struggles, so he was excited to try Psalm Sleep and discover that it actually works very well for him. Right now, Psalm Sleep is offering our listeners 15% off their order. Head to GetSom.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.com. No E. 
Use code MURDERISH for 15% off at checkout. Many of us stress over getting content out on a regular basis, but don't want to worry about all the complexities that come along with it. Issue is an all-in-one platform that essentially creates and pushes out gorgeous digital publications like magazines, brochures, sales collateral, and more. Issue is a great tool for creators, designers, marketers, really anyone who wants to make beautiful content. With Issue, accomplishing all of that is so easy. Just upload your files and watch Issue make them into eye-catching content. What's really cool is that Issue automatically optimizes everything to post on social media or on your website. Instagram stories are so popular. Issue can even make fun IG stories if that's what you're looking for. If you are a marketer, educator, salesperson, creator, or publisher, I am telling you that Issue should definitely be part of your arsenal to tackle digital content creation and distribution. Best of all, it's free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash murderish to sign up for your free account. That's I-S-S-U-U dot info slash murderish to sign up and let them know you heard about it from our show. Remember, that's dot info, not dot com. Go to issue.info slash murderish to set up your free account today. On April 20th of 1966, at around 1230 in the afternoon, King spotted Garrett at the bar of the Manhattan Tap Room on East 100th and Cedar Avenue. The two men argued inside for several minutes before King dragged Garrett out to the sidewalk. Literally dragged him. Sam Garrett was a habitual drug user who suffered from tuberculosis in his left lung. He had also undergone surgery recently to have a kidney removed. All of this amounted to Garrett being a small-statured, frail, and sickly 34-year-old man weighing in at just 134 pounds. King, on the other hand, had over 100 pounds on him, with a weight of roughly 240 pounds. This was not a fair fight. When he first confronted Garrett that afternoon, King had thrown his weight around while projecting his bellowing voice in an attempt to intimidate him. But when Garrett refused to cough up the money, King resorted to sheer brutality. Out on Cedar Avenue in broad daylight, he began beating Garrett, striking him continuously in the face. Garrett was unarmed, but King had a gun on his hip. King knocked Garrett to the ground by using his fist or the butt of his gun. While down on the sidewalk, he kicked Garrett in the face and head. The blood gushing from his victim's face did little to dissuade King. He began stomping on Garrett's face while clutching a revolver in his right hand. Officers Bob Tunn and John Horvath were on routine patrol that afternoon. Both were in plain clothes, dressed in suits and ties. Officer Tunn was well acquainted with Cedar Avenue and its high incidence of crime. In 1961, 12 years into his law enforcement career, he was attacked on 99th Street and Cedar Avenue. A gang of men had jumped and pistol-whipped Officer Tun. He required 72 stitches in his face, but he escaped with his life. The two officers stumbled upon the violent scene in the midst of King's incessant stomping. In Jack Newfield's book, The Life and Crimes of Don King, 
Officer Bob Tone says he recalled seeing a man's head bouncing off the asphalt pavement like a rubber ball. He approached King, ordering him to drop his gun. King placed it on the hood of a parked car. As Officer Tone scooped up the weapon, King got one final kick in. According to Newfield's book, as Garrett lay bleeding and swollen, he mumbled incoherently, Don, I'll give you the money. Those were the last words Sam Garrett would ever say. He lost consciousness long before the ambulance arrived. He was rushed to Lakeside Hospital. The extent of his injuries would not be fully realized until a thorough medical exam could be performed. After King's assault, Garrett slipped into a coma and died five days later. King was handcuffed and taken into police custody. A puzzling investigation would soon follow, delivering shocking results nobody could have foreseen. During King's attack on Garrett, a crowd of 15 to 20 people had formed on the sidewalk. Manhattan taproom regulars spilled onto the street, along with customers from Rico's confectionery and a nearby laundromat. Residents peered out of their windows and pedestrians stopped in their tracks. Nobody intervened. King was no stranger to law enforcement. From 1950 to 1967, he had been arrested for several counts of illegal gambling or schemes of chance, speeding, driving without a license, and tax evasion. At the time Garrett was assaulted, then-Lieutenant Carl DeLau had been acquainted with Don King for 15 years. King served as an unofficial neighborhood informant, providing information about other numbers operators. Every so often, the lieutenant would pay King a visit. Their routine was always the same. DeLau would make small talk and King would eventually mention some key details. He might share the location of betting clips or reveal the identity of a former employee who had flipped their loyalty by running numbers for a rival. In exchange, officers would turn a bit of a blind eye to King's illicit operations. Locals, aware of King's reputation, were hardly surprised to hear that he had committed a second murder. His strong ties to organized crime made him a force to be reckoned with. When King arrived at the police station, his clothing, shoes, and revolver were taken into custody. His shoes and the gun were stained with blood. In his initial statement recorded by Officer Tun, King conveyed his version of events. He said while Garrett was down on the sidewalk, he had seen him reach for something in his pocket. According to King, he had only grabbed the gun out of his car to defend himself. It was clear that he had another self-defense claim up his sleeve. Officer Tone asked why King had a loaded gun on him. He claimed that he had been on his way to getting it registered when Garrett attacked him. At the time of his arrest, King was being investigated for aggravated assault, but when Sam Garrett died as a result of his injuries, the case was moved to the homicide unit. At his arraignment in mid-June, King was informed he was being charged with second-degree murder. He was then released on $2,500 bond. His gambling operations continued without a hitch. King resumed his extravagant lifestyle paying no mind to the reality of his legal situation. 
two detectives, Harry Davidson and Charles Reynolds, led the homicide investigation. They interviewed dozens of people in the East Side neighborhood, ultimately identifying four key witnesses for the state. Three of them, Charles Johnson, Daniel Howell, and Jack Owens, were involved in the numbers game and had arrest records for illegal gambling. The fourth key witness was Rosa Rines, a 53-year-old tenant in a building that overlooked the taproom sidewalk. All of these witnesses cooperated with authorities in the weeks following the assault. They each had a very clear recollection of the one-sided brawl that unfolded, but their testimonies quickly became problematic. Hey guys, you're about to hear a very quick promo for a true crime podcast called Riddle Me That. While you're listening, make sure to hit subscribe. Hi, Murderish listeners. If you're a fan of the show, then I know you will love the brand new podcast, Riddle Me That True Crime. It covers mainly unsolved international cases. The host myself loves to dive deep into cases, cases that don't seem to have a clear resolution. During these strange times, it's comforting to have something entertaining to listen to. Who knows, perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Riddle Me That True Crime is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. According to informants, King's men had threatened all four witnesses for the prosecution. The most effective threat was issued to Rosa Rines. In the days leading up to her scheduled testimony, Nobody had heard from her in days, and she had not reported to work. When two officers traveled to Mrs. Ryan's home, she had vanished. One neighbor hadn't seen her in nearly a week. A police memo theorized that King and his cohorts had driven Mrs. Ryan's out of town, just in time for trial. The perpetrator of the attack on Sam Garrett was indisputably Don King. There had been countless witnesses, including police officers, and yet it seems plenty of measures were taken to avoid accountability. In an interview with sports writer Jack Newfield, Lieutenant Carl DeLau summed it up by saying, From the start, there was an awful lot of suspicious activity around the Don King murder case. Witnesses started to vanish and change their testimony. There were constant rumors that King was spreading money around on the street to reach witnesses. We heard witnesses were threatened. By the time the trial happened, the other witnesses either ended up changing their original testimony or suffering an unexpected bout of amnesia. Even Officer Tun had been offered a bribe by King's bond bailsman, who basically said King would do right by the officer if he did right by him. Don King's trial began on February 21st of 1967. Though stripped of eyewitnesses, the prosecution felt strongly that the crime spoke for itself. Assistant County Prosecutor Ralph Spurley called the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner to the stand to speak about the autopsy he performed on Sam Garrett. According to the Emmy's report, Garrett's cause of death was multiple blunt impacts to the head, with skull fractures, or as author Jack Newfield puts it so eloquently in his book titled The Life and Crimes of Don King, Garrett's brain had been broken like an egg and flooded with blood as a result of the kicks to his head and the crashing impact of his skull against the concrete sidewalk. 
During the second day of trial, Sergeant Mike Haney got a call from his friend, Fred Mullenkoff, city editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Fred had received an anonymous call earlier that morning. The voice on the other line said Don King had been bragging in the streets weeks before he dropped $30,000 to silence witnesses at his upcoming trial. He also heard that King had attended a Cassius Clay fight in Houston back in January. Apparently, King had bet a friend $5,000 that he would never serve a single day behind bars for the crime against Sam Garrett. King hardly seemed nervous about his fate. As for the caller, he claimed to be the nephew of Sam Garrett. He had reached out to Sergeant Haney to prevent Don King from getting away with his uncle's murder. But as curious as the call was, nothing ever came of it. On the third and final day at trial, Prosecutor Spurley presented King's gun to the jury. It had tested positive for Sam's blood. Although other eyewitnesses had been silenced by King, Detectives Tun and Horvath testified about what they saw that day. Both testified that King was kicking a defenseless and severely maimed smaller man. In fact, King had stomped Garrett's face with so much force, his boot left an imprint on his cheek. Officer Tun also confirmed that King had his gun on him when he entered the tap room. King hadn't fetched it out of his car later, as he claimed. As for the claim that he had brandished his weapon in self-defense, that just was not feasible. Garrett's pockets had been found empty. A jury of eight women and four men took four hours to deliberate on King's fate. They emerged with a guilty verdict on the second-degree murder charge, which meant a life sentence. Except, King's fate would take an unexpected turn that likely had a huge impact on the lives and stardom of boxing legends like Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, and George Foreman. On July 24, 1967, the headline of the Cleveland Plain Dealer read, Judge Cuts Hood's Murder Penalty. As it turned out, shortly after trial, King's defense lawyer, James Willis, made a sweetheart deal with Judge Hugh Corrigan in his private chambers. Inexplicably, the charges for Sam Garrett's brutal murder were reduced to manslaughter. King was sentenced to 20 years at the Marion Correctional Institute. He would end up serving only a fraction of his sentence. It seems to many people that Don King got away with murder again. On September 30th of 1971, after serving just four years of his 20-year sentence, King was released on parole. By 1972, he was fully released from parole supervision. Today, King, with his flamboyant hairstyle, is a household name. When reflecting on his prison term, King is often quoted in interviews as saying, I didn't serve time. I made time serve me. While incarcerated, he spent hours on end reading books on philosophy, politics, religion, and business. Upon release, he returned to the numbers game for several years. All the while, 
he was stealthily planning his next move. From his ownership of the New Corner Tavern, King had become friendly with rock and roll singer-songwriter Lloyd Price. Price was a boxing enthusiast who had connections with Muhammad Ali and established promoter Don Elbaum. Elbaum was a good connection to have. He owned a network of small club operations in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Earning his respect was enough of an in to start King's career as a promoter. Meeting Don Elbaum was Don King's major stroke of luck. Elbaum recognized King's keen business sense and affable personality as major strengths. Elbaum had also believed the industry needed a black promoter. King seemed to be the right man. In June of 1972, when King identified a plan to get his foot in the door, he reached out to Elbaum. King had read in a newspaper article that the Forest City Hospital was going bankrupt. It was Cleveland's first interracial hospital with a predominantly black medical staff. King pitched the idea of a benefit show to Elbaum, who put him in touch with Muhammad Ali's manager, Herbert Muhammad. The worthy cause must have motivated Ali to say yes. On August 28th of 1972, Muhammad Ali fought 10 exhibition rounds to a crowd of 8,500 people at the Euclid Avenue Arena. The gate grossed a total of $85,000, or about half a million dollars in today's money. It was the highest gate for a boxing exhibition in history. In a 1988 interview with Playboy magazine, Don King claimed the benefit saved the hospital. In actuality, the hospital only received around $1,500. Don's standard cut of the profits, a lofty 83%, was applied to the charity money. The hospital eventually closed its doors in 1978 due to lack of funding and a series of medical malpractice suits. King started managing club fighters before working his way up to promoting boxing great Larry Holmes. King stole from him right out of the gate. By 1974, King managed to secure promotional rights to the most buzzworthy championship of the era. The record-setting $10 million purse heavyweight championship fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman was set in Zaire, Africa. The legendary fight has often been referred to as the Rumble in the Jungle. King promised the fighters $5 million apiece. That was just how lucrative the business deal was for him. This fight alone catapulted Don King to the very top of the promoter game. 1975 brought King further success as a promoter when he promoted a fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Because it was set in Manila, the capital of the Philippines, the heavyweight championship match was deemed Thrilla in Manila. An unprecedented 1 billion viewers tuned in on closed-circuit TV and pay-per-view to watch the greatest duke it out with Smoke and Joe. Over the next two decades, King's business operated under Don King Productions, Inc. In 1976, he had his first public scandal, at least in the boxing field, that is. King approached the ABC network about broadcasting a national boxing tournament on TV. The United States Boxing Championships would involve tournaments in each weight class 
to crown the best of the best, King actually managed to get a buy-in from the network until a diabolical truth emerged. Apparently, King paid the Ring magazine a substantial sum of money to falsify rankings and records of the fighters to boost interest in the event. At the time, the publication was considered the Bible of boxing. King also duped tournament participants into signing exclusive rights over to him. This was his way of cornering the market on all of the country's best fighters. In 1977, King even held a boxing championship fight at the Marion Correctional Institute, where he had served time. An audience of 1,300 inmates, several visiting dignitaries, and around 100 local VIP invitees watched the nine-round boxing match. Then the moment came where things went awry. One of the fighters, Scott Ledoux, stormed a post-fight interview with his opponent. According to the Boxing Tribune, Ledoux was told he would lose the fight prior to arriving at the venue and that the tournament was rigged to favor only those with contractual ties to Don King and his associates. This marked the first of many allegations against King's unscrupulous business dealings. In the early 1980s, the FBI investigated King as part of a large-scale probe of the boxing field. No charges were ever filed. The threat of losing everything always ended the same, by evaporating when King fanned out his money. In fact, all of his prize fighters ended up suing him, including Muhammad Ali. Ali alleged that King had shortchanged him $1.2 million in his 1980 comeback fight against Larry Holmes. King offered Ali a briefcase full of $50,000 to drop the lawsuit, and he did. Mike Tyson sued Don King in 1988. Contracts Tyson had signed gave King the right to his standard cut from tournament gates and 30% of Tyson's profits. He claimed King had cheated him out of $100 million over the course of a decade. The matter again was settled out of court, with Tyson getting $14 million to drop the charges. In 1983, then-Mayor of Ohio James A. Rhodes pardoned King for the manslaughter charge. It seemed Don King had gotten away with murder in every sense of the word. There was another wild twist to this tale. According to the AP News website, a 2016 proposal regarding a Cleveland street being renamed Don King Way was rejected. For years, an honorary street with that name has existed. It is located close to two newspapers owned by King. Shockingly, the proposal suggested Don King Way be moved to the same block where King had stomped Sam Garrett to death over 50 years ago. If Judge Corrigan had not commuted King's sentence, his life may have taken a completely different course. In the end, Judge Corrigan seemed to trade true justice for political currency. A decade after commuting King's sentence, the judge called in his big favor. According to the Life and Crimes of Don King, when James Corrigan ran for a seat on the Court of Appeals in 1976, 
King arranged for Muhammad Ali to campaign on his behalf. In a commercial that ran on black radio stations WABJ and WJMO, Ali endorsed Corrigan because of what he did for my good friend Don King. As of 2020, Don King's net worth is projected to be $150 million. Sadly, Sam Garrett's life remains largely undocumented, and he and his surviving family members never received true justice. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you'd like to know more about me or the podcast. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. I want to thank Shannon M. and Danielle O. for becoming Patreon supporters. If you're looking for a Murderish t-shirt, the website also has links to buy merch. That's Murderish.com. If you like talking true crime, join the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. Please remember to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. I'd also love it if you wrote a review for the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Stick around after the music if you'd like to hear a list of sources for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include Associated Press, The Daily Reporter, Dover, Ohio, July 28, 1977, Cleveland Memory Project, Cleveland State University, clevelandmemory.org, Crime Museum, Don King, 2017, crimemuseum.org, Paul Finkelman, a 2008 article in the Oxford University Press. Will Grimsley, an article dated March 3rd of 1977 in the Newark Advocate. An April 4th, 2013 article by J. King Caspian at grantland.com. A Film Daily article by Brinley Louise at filmdaily.co. Paul Magno, The Boxing Tribune, March 22nd, 2011. An article by Clay Moyle at blackpass.org dated October 25th of 2008. 
Jack Newfield, The Life and Crimes of Don King, William Moreau and Company, 1995, Ohio History Connection, Cleveland Civil Disorders, an Ohio History Connection article at ohiohistorycentral.org, Jack Patterson, a March 29, 1974 print article at the Akron Beacon Journal, an ESPN article by Mike Puma at ESPN.com, a Teaching Cleveland article by Michael D. Roberts at teachingcleveland.org, a book titled African American Organized Crime, A Social History by Rufus Schatzberg and J. Kelly Robbery, an article dated March 7th of 1977 in the Marion Star by John Short, a July 7th, 2016 article in The Smoking Gun at thesmokinggun.com, an article dated January 27th, 2011 by Dan Wetzel in The Post Game at thepostgame.com, an Associated Press article dated September 24th of 2016 at apnews.com, 